0: I want to share three quick little stories with you because it has everything to do with where we're going this morning. Uh, let me first ask you, have you ever la- ever lost something? You ever lose something? Okay, all the time. Everyone's like, yeah. That's the first time anyone on a Sunday morning responds. I'm like, has anyone ever lied? Everyone's hands are down. Anyone ever cheated? No one raises their hands. I'm like, anyone lose something? Oh, me, I'm right here. I lost everything. Yeah. Charger? Come on. I didn't mean to. Okay? Totally just gave me guilt for losing the phone charger. Um Three times that I really remember losing things that I value most. Uh, the first was my <coughs> wedding ring. <coughs> my wedding ring. I had yeah, ouch. Thanks, Josh. Does not I didn't find it. It didn't help me right now. But I had this wedding ring handmade in gold in Hebrew. It said Malachama ha ha. I am hers and she is mine. As for me, and my house. I'm sorry, this is this ring. That's this ring. I am hers and she's mine. That's this ring. The other ring said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was my first wedding band. Thank you for correcting me during my sermon. Um, and we were, I, was, I, was, I was a brand new married, uh, brand new. It was like what? Two weeks. two weeks? It wasn't two weeks. It was like a month, okay? I got to wear it for a month. And I was a youth pastor. And so every other week, I, don't ask me why I did this. Every other week, I loaded vans and took kids to the shore. And it was like, bringing truckloads of teenagers to the shore is not always the smartest idea. The teenagers are shaking their head. Um, And so we were swimming, and all of a sudden, I was swimming, and the water was really cold. And all of a sudden, I was swimming, I'm like, you know what, I can't lose my ring. So I was swimming, and I made sure that when I swam, I would clench my fist So my wedding band wouldn't fall off. And I'm thinking, I'm newly married. I'm so committed. I can't take off the ring. I have to swim with it. So I'm swimming and all of a sudden, the one time I don't do it, bam, flipper jumps out of the water, eats it and takes off. (laughs) So I get out of the water and we're like playing football and all of a sudden I'm like, no, it's gone. Grabbed all the teenagers from the beach and said, guys, I'm dead. You got to help me find this ring. And we searched for the ring forever. We went to the main house. We went to the beach. We went in the water. We were borrowing masks and snorkels and scuba gear. Not that far, but we did everything. And we searched high and low for my wedding ring. It was one of the worst, it was the worst newly married feeling I've ever had. And it was so, such a horrible feeling because I had it handmade specifically for us. A verse that we were praying about during our engagement, the hope of what our family would become, and it was such this horrible feeling. But I searched for it not only that day, but every single day that I've ever gone back to Ocean Grove, I still look for it. I still go to that little, that little safety hut and say, did you find the ring? They're like, uh, I've got a whole box of them, but we don't have yours. So that was my first time I lost something of great value. The second time, and it actually happened this week, but I'm going to give my first time. Uh, We had two little kids, and we had a dog named Scooby-Doo. And many of you know Scooby. Scooby passed away a year ago. It was really, really hard. And the first time Scooby-Doo ever ran away, I got a call because we worked at a camp, and we had radios, and all I heard was, uh, Rob, copy, Rob. And I'm like, "Uh, yes, Sue, copy, why are you calling me on the the walkie-talkie? scooby's gone so i fly home on my little motorcycle i had this little wee, wee, flying to the woods i searched high and low for this dog and i remember going through the woods to the next lake over and coming to this place thinking i'm never going to find my puppy and like literally i'm telling you i could like cry right now like that's how much i love that little monster that little dog drove me crazy but i had to find him And I remember when I was searching for him that I had this feeling like he's gone. He's gone. Fortunately, Shaggy helped me find Scooby. They picked him up in the mystery van and we brought him home. All you Scooby-Doo fans out there. We did find him. The last one was my son Benjamin. Benjamin, stand up. For some reason at the age of three, two, at the age of two, we were in our house. And like all parents nowadays, we're very protect- protective. Doors are closed. We know where our kids are. And all of a sudden, Benjamin's gone. We have no idea where he is. So Sue's like, where's Benjamin? I'm like, I thought he's with you. She's like, no, I thought he was with you. And we're sitting there in our living room fighting back and forth who he's supposed to be with. And we're like, time out. We got to go get him. And we had a search committee looking for this little boy. Benjamin, la, 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 at the age of two, wandered off from our house to go hang out with our neighbors and play basketball at two. And I'm telling you, losing my ring was horrible. Losing my dog was even worse than the ring. Sorry, just he was part of our family. (laughs) He was part of our family. But losing Benjamin, I could have vomited on the spot. And there's this feeling that like you have when you lose a child that is irreplaceable. There's nothing worse than that feeling. Of course, we found him. He's been punished ever since. But he's back. So this is what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. And we're going to be talking about this for a long time. Gospel fluency. Do we know the gospel? Are we applying the gospel to our lives? How are we applying the gospel to our lives? And then, how does it translate into our every single day. How do we live a life where the Gospel is fluent? It's like our first language. That as we make decisions, as we make business decisions, as we make family decisions, as we make parenting decisions, as we make financial decisions, as we make buying and selling our home decisions, as we make simple little decisions, how does the Gospel affect our lives? So as I've been really thinking about Gospel fluency, I've been asking the question, do we truly understand the gospel? And what I'm learning is, is that we oftentimes don't understand the gospel. Let me give you an example. We talked about forgiveness. We believe that we, understanding the gospel means that we understand that we are forgiven. There's a truth to that. But to fully know the gospel, it's about understanding that you are forgiven to what? Forgive others. Because every time you forgive someone else, you are a reflection of Jesus Christ to them. That was one of those kairos aha moments in our church where everyone started saying, I get it, I get it, I get it. The same thing with faith. When I started talking about faith, I started talking about objects of faith. That it's not that we have faith in faith, but we have faith in who? Jesus. And so when we start thinking about the gospel, the question we need to ask is, do I truly know the gospel that it affects my life in every single venue in which I step into? For the Ramapo College student, for school, for the person who works at J.P. Morgan, as he steps into J.P. Morgan, for that school nurse, for the teacher, for all of us in all of our lives, do we understand the gospel in such a way that when we show up, we really believe that the gospel is within and the gospel is within with one purpose: to live out. Yet that? That the gospel is within so that we can step out and live in it. That's what gospel fluency is. And so much of our Christian world is about consumerism, that the gospel's all about me, and that's it. You see, that's not gospel fluency. And so I want to come back to one of the most elementary understandings of the gospel this morning. And I want to talk to you about it through the lens of two different parables. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. You see, the neat thing about Jesus is he taught very different than most pastors do this day, today. Jesus always taught in story. He always taught in parables. And oftentimes, when we think about parables, we think about every parable has many, many meanings. Not true. Parables have one meaning and one meaning alone. You see, sometimes we don't like the meanings of parables, so what do we do? We tweak it to make it work for us, to make the parable the most comfortable, easiest way of living out the gospel. So we twist it and we turn it and we do all these things with it so it fits our lives. That's not true. When Jesus gave a parable, he gave it with one specific meaning. That if we grasp, it has the power to redirect our lives. Would you read with me? Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Stop real quick. Jesus always found himself with the people who wanted to listen. If If the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to talk and listen, Jesus would have spent a whole lot more time with them. But the fact of the matter was, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots all thought they figured it out. They wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, but they did not like the way that Jesus was coming and presenting himself. And so what did Jesus do? He went to the individuals that would listen, that would take in, that would see with eyes that thought they couldn't see and hear with ears that thought they would never hear. Let's continue. So Jesus told them this parable. So who did he tell the parable to? The Pharisees and Sadducees. If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until, he is found, until he's found it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. That's the first parable. So you're thinking like, hey, one story, they should get it, right? Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let me kind of nail this home a little more. Let me, let me take this a step further. Let me tell you another story. It's kind of like with your parents. When your parents give you like, the same advice twice, you know you're really in trouble. Right? Right? All you teenagers, when your mom and dad tell you something twice, you're shaking the head, they're all mad at me like, I hate you right now. <laughs> Second time. Or suppose a woman who has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me. Because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So let's look at this, these two parables. They're easy to understand. You're probably like, okay, why are we walking through them? Let's, let's, just, let's talk about them. The first parable is simply about this. A shepherd. He was responsible for a herd of a hundred sheep. And with those 100 sheep, one of them had gotten lost. Was he the naughty sheep? We don't know. We like to think he's the naughty sheep. The one sheep that always kind of giving the shepherd the hard time, but we have no idea about what was in the sheep's mind. Was everyone grazing and he got caught up in this really nice green grass? Was he at the stream and he didn't hear the shepherd's voice and continued to lap up the water and drink in the fresh liquid? Did he kind of playing with some others and, and all of a sudden when he turned around he looked and they were all gone? We have no idea in this story, and that's the beauty of the story, is that we have no understanding how or why this one sheep had been lost from the from the herd was there a wolf that he saw and when he saw a predator that he took off and ran we don't know but all we know is this one sheep was gone and in that moment that shepherd had a decision you see sheep was the equivalent of money of income of finances and so, when shepherd had sheep, they weren't just uh, for their own liking, and they, it was something of a hobby. It was their livelihood. Everything that they were responsible for was their sheep. Matter of fact, sheep in biblical times were extremely important because whenever sacrifices were made to the temple, one of the most important sacrifices in the temple was a sheep. If you sacrificed a dove or you sacrificed something little small, it was like, okay, I can't afford it, so I'm going to grab like two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree. That's what you would do. But when you brought a sheep to the temple for sacrifice, it was significant. It was a sign that you're saying, everything I have, everything I own, everything of my worth is found right here. And you brought that sheep to be sacrificed. And so you're thinking, well, the shepherd had 99 others. Like, what would he do? We oftentimes think that maybe there was a couple shepherds with him, right? Maybe there's like two or three shepherds like, hey, listen, I'm going to go check out for the sheep. You stay here. Watch the other 99. That's not what happened. There was one shepherd and 100 sheep. And he took off and he went to search for him no matter what. And all he could think about, was that one you see there was a ten place of tension for that shepherd what do i do with that which i value the most what do i do with my livelihood part of it being lost do i go search and find it what do i do knowing that that these sheep are part of the sacrifice to god what do i do with with this one sheep and what he did was he left everything he risked everything for that one. Now let's talk about the woman. Can I have your wedding ring? Do you trust me with it? Okay, thank you. Well, oftentimes when we think about this next parable, that this woman had lost some coins. And when you read all the different examples and different, uh, all, all these different commentaries, it's, there's many different meanings. But the one meaning that holds value the most is that this coin that the woman had lost was like her diamond in her ring. Because what happened back then was that when a woman was married, a, a man would give her like a, a headdress with ten different coins. Ten different coins. Each of great wealth. And in that, really what the story, to give it its most deepest meaning, would be like a woman who for some reason, her diamond, became loose And she knew that it was on her finger all day long, but when she took it off and put it on the counter and she picked it up, the diamond had rolled away. And she couldn't find it. And what this woman did was she scurried the house. She moved the furniture. She took out the broom. She did everything to find that ring. Place of tension. You see that that coin was a symbol of the commitment between her and her husband. It's like with Sue and I, there have been times that she has lost her wedding band in our room or, or in the kitchen or in the house and, and she's just frantically going crazy out of control. I'm like, honey, it's okay. We'll find it. You don't get it. You don't understand. This is a sign of our commitment to one another. I don't care what I lose, but I don't want to lose this one piece. I remember one time even Sue dropped her wedding ring in the toilet. I'm like, no, don't do it. We'll stop right there. (laughs) But think about that. If you had lost your diamond, Sue Cher, what would you do? You would look for it. You would spend eternity with the purpose to find it. And if you did not find it, there would always be that peace that was missing. There would always be that peace in your soul that as you looked at that ring, and maybe you, maybe you have like 10 different diamonds on your rings, that one missing spoke louder than all the ones that were there. And for that shepherd, it was the same thing that even if he went back, I mean, hey, 99 out of 100, that's a pretty good percentage. That's like being in the Hall of Fame of Shepherds. But there's this tension. That when we lose things that mean value to us, we are willing to do everything and anything to find it. We are willing to give up everything. We are willing to stop our lives. I mean, think about that parent who had a child who's gone and missing. Their lives are never the same. They spend their whole eternity up and down this world looking and searching for that child. I hate to say this. I think it would be harder to have a child be lost than a child who's lost to death. Because you know what has happened to them. You know that they're in the care of God's hands. But if you lost a child, you have no idea whose hands that little kid is in. And you see, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, how much do you really value this life? Let me throw some things at you to really think about what I'm going to about to explain to you. So this is a parable. Well, now let's look at the narrative in Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Because if we were just looking at a parable, it's more of just a story like, hey, I wonder how this co- correlates with Scripture. Hey, I wonder how this really plays effect in my life. Like, I can probably already figure it out Like, maybe I'm that coin. Maybe I'm that sheep. Maybe I'm that. Let's see what Scripture says about humanity. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Here's the passage. Adam and Eve were told to do everything but one. You see, we oftentimes forget about that. God said, do whatever you want in this, in this garden. Do whatever you want on this earth. I'm giving you so much privilege. So much free reign. I'm allowing you to do anything you want. Just stay away from there. Don't you hate that? Like right away, it's like, what do you mean over there? Over here? Over there? Whereabouts? Where, where do you really mean you don't want? Stay away from the tree of good and knowledge. Stay away from that tree. That tree is dangerous. What do you mean this tree over here? This one over here? Right? Don't we all do that? Like we could say, God could say, hey, You can have the whole East Coast. Just stay away from D.C. Where do you want to go? D.C. Right? And so God says do this. But Adam and Eve were manipulated to go to the tree. They were manipulated to take the tree, look at the tree, touch the tree, smell the tree, I can hold the fruit of the tree, but I can not I can lick it, but I can't bite it. Right? You ever, see, you ever see that with your kids? Like, don't eat the lollipop. I licked it. I didn't bite it. Don't do it. But they ate. And the moment they ate, they got lost. They ran. They took off. And it says in Scripture that they hid. They were hiding from God. Now what do you think God's response should be in the God that we hear through the media, through the world, through people who really don't know Scripture? We think of a God who says, well, that's their fault. That's their problem. That's their mess up. Shame on them. And when they understand what they did, they will come home. They will return. They will apologize. They will share their guilt and shame with me. I'm done. Isn't that kind of how many of us grew up? Right? You mess up, good luck. And so oftentimes, we think of that God that God would just let them hide and just keep walking further and further and further away. But here is the narrative of Scripture. The truth of the Bible is that God went to find them. God searched for them, even though He knew what they had done, something shifted, something changed, something supernaturally occurred that He's like, oops, they did it. We all have that feeling as parents, don't we? We know for some reason we're upstairs and our kids are in the basement, we're like, something just happened. And all of a sudden, God goes to find them. God searches for them. And he calls to them for one purpose. Because he loves them. And he wants them to be back in relationship with him. Think of that. That which God valued most became lost. And when we look at all of creation, when we look at the, let's use my example, the wedding ring, the puppy, And my son, what do I value most? My son, because he's my creation. Just like humanity is God's creation, and no matter what happened, no matter what Adam and Eve did, no matter how they all of a sudden caused a chasm between God and humanity, God said, I'm still going to find them. I'm still going to go to them, and I'm still going to rescue them. I love them so much that no matter what they have done, I will step into their world now and I want to redeem them into a relationship that I've always have longed for since the beginning of creation. You see, we take that narrative of Adam and Eve way too Way too simply. We kind of do it as a way to kind of understand sin that yeah, Adam and Eve, it's their fault. That's why everything's bad in this world. No. Adam and Eve became lost. They chose to do something that pushed them away from God. And God said that no matter what you've done, how you did it, why you did it, no matter what the level of it is, I will find you. So let me ask you a question. If the Gospel is, God goes to search for us, do you ever recognize a time in your life that you were lost? Because we live in this arrogant Christianity that we go to God. We live in this prideful faith that it's, it's all about us going to God. I found God. I found Jesus. I found the church. I found Him. I sought Him out. That's not biblical. That's actually unbiblical. Listen to what the Bible says. It says this in John three seventeen. God sent, God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world. Don't we love to be judges? Don't we? Don't we love to judge? But to save the world through Him. John 10.11 I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd sacrifices His life for the sheep. God saw humanity's lostness. And in that, He sent Himself to redeem humanity through Jesus Christ. So we don't have to have this Chasm as Adam and Eve had, that we don't have to have this chasm in our soul, but that God would save us. The Greek word for save is sozo. Matter of fact, Led Zeppelin stole that for one of their band members' names, all you Led Zeppelin fans out there, right? But in that, that word means to rescue, to save, to restore. It's a word that's in Greek that is used over 110 times in the New Testament. Why was it used so much? Because God wants us to know that He is the one who saves us through His Son Jesus Christ. But the question we need to ask is do we understand at some point that we've been lost? That we've been lost. That we're out there and we realize that there's this breaking in our soul that that God's not present. And He's nowhere to be found. And the deeper that I walk down the the, the valleys that I've chosen to walk into, the further and further God feels and senses to be from me. Anyone ever feel that way? But the question is, what is God saving us from? What is it that He's coming down to rescue us? Why is He going after us? Four things. The penalty of sin. Whether we like it or not, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And that sin had caused a separation that we don't have that sense and that presence of God. There's people that will come here that have have no relationship with God and they're trying it out, and all of a sudden they're like, I sense something in your church. That's God's presence. That's God's presence. Penalty of sin, it says here in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sent His Son to rescue us from the penalty of sin. If you have ever, which we all have, have felt this separation from God, it's the penalty of sin, It's that what Adam and Eve had done that caused the separation between humanity and God that we don't feel His presence. That we feel lost. We feel aimless. And so when Jesus came, He came to rescue us that in Jesus we are found and we have life. That's why when people truly come to know Jesus, they're like, I feel reborn. Yeah, that's what it says in Scripture. I feel like new. I feel found. I feel like life. I feel like, for me, when, I found, when Jesus found me, I felt like I was given a second chance. A do-over. That was my born-again moment. When I knew that I said, I felt like God said to me, Rob, I just gave you a do-over. That, to me, was knowing that the penalty for sin was done. It was done. I'm going to heaven no matter what because Jesus found Rob. Next, the, penal, the power of sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. For the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. I recognize that I still sin. I recognize that I can sin a million times a day. But I also realize this, that I choose the wrongdoings I do. And what Jesus had come to do was to break the power of sin in our lives. You see, when I became a Christian, when I became a follower of Jesus, I had a lot of junk, a lot of garbage, a lot of issues. And in that, all of a sudden, when I felt like God said, I'm giving you a do-over, I will say this, my big issues vanished. Supernaturally. Supernaturally were gone. And the only time they came back in my life was when I chose in my frustration or in my temptation or in my plain old wanting to do it, those were the only time they came back in my life. Why? Because the power of sin was broken. And some of you need to hear that out there. Let me just This is just one of those moments where I feel like God's speaking. Men, you need to hear that. That if you are a follower of Jesus, the power of sin is broken in your life. And you can live a life of purity and prosperity. Are you listening to me? You don't have to live a life that is controlled by your sinful nature. And guys, you know what I'm talking about the power of sin is broken you will choose whether or not you want to engage in certain things or not but the power of sin is gone is gone next the presence of sin now all of us can come to the father through the same holy spirit because of what christ has done for us so now you gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners you are citizens along with all of god's holy people you are members of God's family. You know when you live in a house before you're a Christian and you always feel this pressure and this, this place that, that you just know that something's not right. You see, the presence of sin doesn't need to be with us anymore. That longing, that desire that, that kind of follows us and, and haunts us and, and just kind of is, is tied to our ankles is broken when God finds us. Because the presence of sin is no longer there. One of the hardest things that when Sue and I do premarital counseling for couples is when it comes to the sex talk. Yes, I said it. The sex talk. And one of the biggest struggles is that for many people in their past, they have been very sexually active. I just got together with a young Christian guy who has gotten married recently, and he's not from the church, so no one look at all the guys that just got married in the church. Okay? He was a guy that, that, that needed some sex advice. And so, call Pastor Rob. Thanks. <laughs> and so we got together, and I had to talk to him and say that when you are married, sex is good, pure, and holy. Holy. Sex is something that God has blessed you with. And sex is fun. It's supposed to be fun. All you parents are freaking out like I'm sending Rob an email right after this. But in Jesus, in marriage, has God has said it is, one man, one woman together, sex is good, pure, holy, and rocking. That's what it is. But if you have a sex life outside of marriage, you have condemnation, you have guilt, you have shame that you bring to your spouse. Amen? Anyone feel that before? Liars. But this is what it is when you are living a life for Jesus, your past is gone, there's no more guilt, there's no more shame. There's no more living it. this okay? What am I doing? I feel like this. No. You are walking in the light of Jesus. Amen? All you married people? Yeah. Everyone who wants to get married? <laughs> yeah. Alright. Here's the reality. God finds us. God searches for us. And when you feel that pressure in your chest, when you feel that tugging at your soul, when you feel that nudge that that God wants you to know Him, when you feel this pulling, this wooing, this longing, this loving, this, this lasso catching you and just saying, I feel like God's haunting me. I feel like I want to go to church. I feel like there's something more up there and I think I need to find Him. You have not found God. God has said, I am finding you because you are lost. How awesome is that? Has nothing to do with you. Nothing. Nada. Jack. Silch. Nothing. God loves humanity that He sent His Son because everyone in this room He wants to find. Everyone. You do not find God. God finds you. And so when we sing our songs of worship, when we raise our hands, we're saying, thank you, Daddy, for finding me. You see, when we think that we found God, it's all about who? Us! But when we think that God has found us, who's it all about? God! That's the game changer. You can choose to be lost. Hey, I grew up in the church and I wanted to get as lost as I could from that church. Do you know what's so cool? In 1991 today, I ran as far away from God as possible. I was as far from God as possible and that night, God went to find me. Three days from now was my Jesus moment. I actually overdosed on LSD. Did things I shouldn't have done. I ran as far from God as possible. And when I thought I was as far away as possible, that's when I said, God, are you there? And he reached down and he found me. What is that? 23 years ago? 23 years ago, Jesus found me. And when I grasped that he found me and I didn't find him, it changed my life. I never went back to the way that I was. I never wanted to be that old Rob. I wanted to stand next to my daddy's side. I didn't want to get lost. I didn't want to run. And every time I did run and I ran a little bit away, He always said, I'm going for you, Rob. I'm finding you, Rob. I'm going to, I see you hiding behind the tree, Rob. I see you going here, Rob. And He finds us. You see, that's Gospel fluency. Amen? God finds us. For God so loved the world that He came to find you and I. That the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin... And even though it says in Proverbs that, that it says here in Proverbs there is a path before each person that seems right but it ends in death that even though I want to choose my own path even though I want to run from God even though I want to hide from God God will still search me out. Amen? Amen. So the only meaning in this parable is this. Jesus is going to haunt you. <laughs> it doesn't say that. That's my words. Jesus is going to find you. Jesus is going to search for you. When you roll away, when you choose to do things, Jesus is going to find you. When you choose that, and there's times when we don't even know that we're lost, right? Let's be honest. Some people are like, I don't know that I'm lost. God's going to find you. He's going to bring you back. He's going to love you. He's not going to bring you back like I wanted to. Like when, when Jakey ran away this week, I was ready to kill him. I was ready to sacrifice him to the Lord. I'm just like, I'm like, Aah! I don't even, so well, let's stop right there. That's not what he does. He says, I'm here. I'm here. It's like with Ben. When I saw Ben and he was lost, my first reaction is, I love you. Now you're in trouble. He doesn't even do that. He just loves us. And he brings it. Brings his love to us. There's no condemnation. When I came to Jesus, I remember it was November 4th and I was laying on my bed. And it was really, it was one of those crazy nights. And I share this freely. I was going to kill myself. I was going to jump off the King's College. I was going to jump off a 100 foot building and I was walking up to the dorms to climb my dorm. I knew the elevator. I knew how to get out there. My my window was a seventh story and there's about 30 or 40 feet after the seventh story. I said, I'm going to jump. And when I was walking, all I heard was this voice that said, Try me. And I knew who it was. Parents, that's why you speak gospel into your kids. I knew that voice was Jesus. And I responded. And I responded to him. And I laid in my bed and I bawled because it was the greatest and worst day of my life. It was the greatest day because I knew Jesus found me. But it was also the worst day because I chose to be lost. So, how do we live out gospel fluency? It's not just knowing this, it's, it's living this. God has put people in your life that you are Jesus present. You get that? You are Jesus present. And so, for me, is you all think like, oh, you're a pastor. You always got to kind of be looking for the lost, looking for the corn, looking for the sheep. We're all. We're all in the same boat. And so when I thought about this, I thought about three things that that I do that that allows me to help people find Jesus. One, my friends that aren't in this room. I could think of one right now who is lost and he doesn't even want to know that he is. I constantly show up in his life and he constantly knows that someone's there for him. And I show up and I show up and I show up. And I don't make myself arrogant, I make myself humble by being present through all of his pain and all of his trials and all of his victory and all his success. Second, I'm heavily involved in Rotary. I'm vice president of our Rotary Club here in Bergen County. I'd be present because in that, I have no idea what's going on in people's lives in our community group. And through that, I've been able to share. Through that, I met Christy through Rotary. I met Christy, you never know. The hands that God uses in the people in our lives. And third is that I meet with, uh, I meet with couples in general, but there are a lot of times that people said, hey, can you marry us? And there's two groups of people that I'll marry. Two believers or two non-believers. I will not marry a Christian and a non-Christian because they're unequally yoked. That's what scripture says. But for that non-Christian couple, I look at it as gospel opportunities that I can sit down with them, that I can love them, that I can counsel them, that I can be gospel present for them. That's what I do. Last night I had a wedding of one of those weddings. And they were so thrilled. And I got to share about Jesus. Listen. Gospel fluency begins with understanding who He is and who you are in light of Him. And when you are found you know you're found. Amen? Okay, that makes sense? Okay, good. We're going to go to the communion table. I want to ask Bill, would you help me? And all we're going to say to you is, you are found. Whether you choose to be found or not, you are found by God. May we walk in knowing that Jesus has found us. I invite all who follow the way of Jesus to come eat of the table. Amen.